And if you're anything like me, you just sat through that Bible reading. When I opened that passage the first time, and you thought, geez, more judgment again? Maybe you don't remember all the passage of judgment that we've done in Revelation already. Why is Revelation so obsessed with God's judgment? Why does it take so long for the end of the world to end? Why does it have to be so gory and so strange? I think there are two things that are happening um, as we read Revelation. Firstly, it's kind of like we're on a merry-go-round. So for the past three months, for the past three sermons, we've had the seven seals on the scroll that the Lamb was worthy to open. Uh, This released the four horses and their riders of the apocalypse. Uh, We had the seven trumpets, which were more judgment, more uh, justice and also misery. And now we have these seven bowls of wrath. It feels like what's happening is we're on this merry-go-round, going round and round God's justice, seeing it from different angles um, for all it's worth. And I think for us in some ways, when we just want to hear, what's the truth? What do we need to know? For us, that can feel exhausting if we're forced to go around it again and again and again. I think this is what's happening. Think of what a merry-go-round is, right? The point isn't to get to the end because there is no end, um, like a race or a roller coaster. The point is to enjoy going round, enjoy the experience of what it's like to go round and round. Except roller coasters aren't supposed to be exhausting, they're supposed to be fun. I think revelation isn't supposed to be exhausting, it's supposed to be exhaustive. We're supposed to see God's judgment for all that it's worth. All of it in view from every different angle. And surely, to see everything from every different angle, we might need more than one go around the merry-go-round, right? Who knows that they're never satisfied with just one go on the merry-go-round. So as we approach this end of judgment in Revelation, let's keep in mind that the judgment in Revelation gets explored from lots of different angles. And here is just another one. And so I said that we're on a merry-go-round, and secondly, I'm saying that we're not in a textbook. The other difficulty with reading judgment in Revelation is that John, who's actually one of Jesus' closest friends, John isn't writing a textbook on what happens after you die. He's not writing a manual on what's going to happen when God flicks the switch on the end. Instead, he's giving pictures He's given images of what it will be like. In that way, I think Revelation is more of a picture book than a textbook. Who knows here that picture books still can tell really deep and important truths. It's designed to capture our imagination and also to help us live faithful lives in light of God's eternal purpose. So as we approach this last judgment, Let's keep in mind the truth of what's being said in Revelation, but also the way that it's coming to us. It's not coming in a textbook form. It's coming to us in images, in stories, rather than facts and statements. Um, Which is why this morning, you'll be maybe glad to know, I have three images... to help us understand what John is talking about 
when he talks about judgment. We have wine or um, water with food coloring in it. (laughs) We have a dancer and we have a candle. So let's begin. Let's begin in the text. Let's read from chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. This loud voice from the temple, one of God's authority, saying to these seven angels, God's messengers, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. God's wrath, his anger, as it's used in the Old Testament, literally his heat, That's what it means, is to be spread across the whole earth by his messengers. So as I said, this picture is found in the Old Testament, but it comes to us as the cup of wrath, or more literally, the cup of his heat. And the prophets in the Old Testament, John is a prophet, by the way, the prophets in the Old Testament use it as a way of explaining the awful effects of sin. Jeremiah puts it like this in seven, um, chapter 7, verse 17 to 20. He's talking about people who are plagued by sin. What do we see? Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, in the very place where God's supposed to be? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the Queen of Heaven. They pour out their drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. We see here that sin is, is kind of like being complicit. Look at the household. The children, maybe they don't know what's happening, but they gather wood to help the fire get started. The father lights the fire. He's the one doing it. And the wife makes the cakes to offer to a God who isn't their true God. The whole household, the whole system is complicit in worshipping someone who isn't God. And what does God say? But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord. Aren't they actually harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my anger and my wrath will be poured out. On this place, God says, Look, if they are pouring out drink offerings to God, to idols of their own making, then I'm going to pour out my anger and my wrath. And I think often when we come to think of God's wrath, we think of it as unnecessarily violent or maybe as being petty. You know, what did I do to deserve that? Or as being uncalled for. But what does Jeremiah say that God thinks about this? God isn't getting angry. He's asking the question, am I really the one they're provoking? Am I the one getting upset about this? Aren't they just harming themselves to their own shame? And God says, just as they pour out drink offerings, so I'm going to pour out my wrath. My wrath is nothing more than the harm and the shame that they're actually bringing upon themselves. The Bible's witness is that God isn't looking for a way to destroy us. He isn't looking for a slip-up. Actually, it's quite the opposite. 
the one who has made us good, very good even, that's what he calls us, is content to shield us for a time against our own harm and our shame. It's what the cup represents. It's a shielding. Right? He's content to shield a kid in involvement in things beyond their control. Um, maybe the father's blind arrogance. A mother's willingness just to keep everything going smoothly. I don't know, maybe things that a single person might lust after. Maybe even things that married people lust after. All contained. Oh, that's going to get messy. <laughs> maybe this is illustrative of the point. Things get messy. In other Old Testament passage, God's cup of wrath is described as as foaming, like wine that's been left out for too long. Terrible. Well, and why wine? Well, wine makes us stagger. It defeats us. It lays us low. We're undone by a cup, by a bowl full of wine. And this is why wine helps us remember that what we do matters. Because things don't just disappear into thin air. We are responsible for our own actions. And we've, we've taken a diversion from Revelation, but before we get back there, I just want to go via the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, in his last hours, prayed to God, Father, this is Matthew 26, 39, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. And this was the cup that he was talking about. The cup of wrath, the cup that harbours all the harm and all of the shame that's brought on us by being complicit in sin. The cup that should have been poured out on us instead is poured out on Jesus. Jesus, in our place, takes the harm and shame of our sin as he dies on the cross. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. This is what we remember when we drink the communion cup. In Revelation, that's the power of the blood of the Lamb. So as we read in 16 verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. An ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. This makes sense. This makes sense with what we've been talking about, that God's wrath is the shame and the harm that we bring upon ourselves. The followers of the beast, which I'm glad I didn't have to preach on, um, there are actually two beasts. It's interesting. Anyway, the beast is an image of everything that opposes Jesus and his sacrificial victory. The beast is everything that opposes God. And we see here that the followers of the beast, who have the mark of the beast earlier on, when God's wrath is poured out on them, now they have ugly, blistering sores. Just as they had a defining mark in their lives to the obedience to the beast, now they have horrible sores as a mark of the harm and the shame done in living in disobedience to the Lamb. 
And this is why wine helps us remember that what we do matters, that nothing's neutral. But God also, he isn't enraged by our action, but instead mourns the harm and the shame that we bring upon ourselves. And wine also helps us remember that what Jesus has done matters. That he's taken the cup that was meant for us and that is also bound for those who don't trust him. He's taken on the harm and the shame of our own sin and he's emptied the bowl of God's wrath for our sake so it doesn't get poured out on us. So next, dance. This is a dancer, if you can't see. Dance helps us remember that God judges with a strange kind of restraint. God's wrath continues to get poured out. Let's read from verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person. And every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you're just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were... For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. So if you go back to verse 3, this second angel pouring out the bowl, I'm, I'm, not, sure, I'm, sorry, I'm not sure why everything in the sea dies, to be honest. Um, a lot of people who write about Revelation are a bit confused as well. But perhaps it plays into the third bowl, Right, with the fresh water being turned into blood too. Something terrible is happening. Something really bad is happening. Almost feels like we're back at the beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? This record of God freeing his people from captivity with a strong arm and an outstretched hand. Exodus, anyone? Egypt, Moses, Pharaoh, the plagues, where the Nile gets turned into blood. John is seeing... God's judgment in parallel with the judgment in Egypt for Pharaoh's stubborn heart. And he hears something too, an angel saying or singing a song. You're just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. For people who are... Uh, living in faith with God, we trust that when God does something that it's fair and just. Right? We know that God can't do anything outside of his own character. Well, actually, God's allowed to do whatever he wants. Um, but we trust that God acts consistently within himself, that he is true and he's fair. Except maybe you're like me and you saw in verse 6 that the punishment doesn't exactly fit the crime. You go, they've shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. They've killed Christians who follow Jesus. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Those who kill, steal, destroy, aren't themselves killed, stolen away or destroyed. Instead, they're given blood to drink, which, I mean, it's, it's, it's still a pretty bad punishment, isn't it? Still a, still a pretty um, bad thing to happen. But dance remember, helps us remember that God judges with strange restraint. This is a dancer. Um, his name is Lee Kung Ching. 
Um, I don't know if you know the story of Mao's last dancer. This is the man. His dancing took him across the world, took him to adoring audiences, helped him escape communist China. Um, and I don't, I don't put myself nearly anywhere near Lee, uh, but I think of myself as a little bit of a dancer. I wonder if you'd call yourself a dancer. Nah? <laughs> well, I'd call myself, I'd, I just wouldn't call myself a very good one. Someone who loves to dance. See, I think there's a difference between getting loose on the dance floor, letting it all hang out, not caring, and being free to do whatever you want. Or being someone like Lee, being trained, being knowledgeable, knowing the outcomes of what you do, training, practicing, perfecting every movement that you do so that you're free to do exactly what you want, that there are no limitations. Dance helps us remember that God judges with a strange restraint. Just like a dancer, his wrath isn't wild or loose. It's not uncontrolled. His judgments are perfect. They move in a way that might be unexpected. They move in a way that we might not be able to be sure of what's happening. But they do exactly what they set out to do. So I don't think any of us, at the end of the day, doesn't want to see justice done. Justice done for other people. Justice done for ourselves. And if we were to be honest, maybe justice done for the wrongs that we've done against people. But I think if it was left to us, we would be the ones letting loose on the dance floor, wouldn't we? Being free to do whatever we want, but leaving black eyes, sprained ankles in our wake. Maybe some torn items of clothing. Instead, here is this, this image of God who judges appropriately, but doesn't repay like for like. Here's the image of a trained masterful dancer, a graceful dancer even, one who's not us, but we can trust who's perfect in his justice. See, a dancer helps us remember that God judges with a strange kind of restraint. And we hear the altar in reply in verse 7. Yes, Lord God, true and just are your judgments. This is the same altar that cries out in chapter 6 when they're under intense persecution. They're saying, How long, O Lord, until you visit the inhabitants of the earth and carry out your justice against those who shed our blood? And God says, Just wait. Wait a little bit longer. And here we see God honouring his promise to those who call out to him for justice, to those who are hurting and in distress. The cry of those who've suffered injustice is now a song of thanksgiving. They're thanking God. God has delivered on his promise of justice. So if through wine we remember that what we do matters, and if through a dancer we remember that God judges with a strange kind of restraint, through a candle, it helps us see why God judges. And it helps us remember the persecuted and their persecutors. Let's read verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, 
and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fourth bowl that's poured out, our final bowl for this morning, is poured out on all of the earth and it sees the sun piercing the earth with this like intense fire, intense heat. We live in South Australia. We understand maybe a little bit of what it's like. But here's the kicker. There are those who acknowledge what's happening to them. They're seared by the intense heat. They curse the name of God who had control over those plagues. They know that God is the one behind these, but they refuse to repent and glorify him. They decide not to do anything about it. Again, I think we're reminded of the Exodus story where the plagues were sent so that Pharaoh would know that God is God, that he would repent and Israel would be set free so that they can worship God. You see, I think all throughout Scripture, the witness is that the reason why God's wrath which is you know, the harm and the shame that we ourselves build up, is let go on the earth, is so that people can turn and that they can repent, that they can seek God. This is another massive message of the Old Testament prophets. God promises to restore people who seek God through his wrath and turn back to him. So we're picking on the prophet Jeremiah, Let's read some, of, some Old Testament to hear what God says to his people and see how that applies to Revelation. This is Jeremiah 29, 11, which a lot of people would love to quote um, a lot of, on, a, on a lot of um, Instagram handles. Um, but here we see it in context that God has exiled his people. He's poured out his wrath. Israel has been disobedient and they've been handed over His wrath has been poured out and they've been sent away to Babylon. This is from 29.10. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, so when Israel is in Babylon for 70 years, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, to bring you back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to me. The purpose of God's wrath is that so people might see him through it, and they might turn and repent. And so for us, when we see people refusing to repent, like we do in this passage, I think it's a place of great pain. Imagine we're all in that place for some people. And we ourselves have been there too, haven't we? Refusing to turn. But let's think of it in context. Let's think of, imagine, let's say we were part of a church who were one of the first people to receive the letter of Revelation. Say um, it's the year 92 AD or something. That's about when... Revelation, people think Revelation was written. Do you reckon as early Christians, we would be in a position to mourn those who don't repent? It'd be pretty tempting to not mourn, right? Because our faith is so dangerous to the state that you, you couldn't tell people where you were going or what you were gathering for. 
You were meeting in houses at night. You might have shuffled into the house at night, shared a meal, sung a hymn, maybe recited some scripture. There might have been some prophecy, some teaching, some words of warning. All of this done by the light of a candle. And it was done quietly, discreetly, because you were in real danger. Because people were shedding your blood. Those who weren't living in the life that Jesus has provided. Those, as Revelation paints the picture, those who follow the beast. With a mark on their skin were the real threat. Yet amongst all of this, there was also this this command and this conviction that we're going to pray for our enemies, that we're going to bless those who persecute us. That's why these words of justice were such a comfort to those who are persecuted. And that's why these words of justice are still such a comfort for those who are persecuted. I'd like us to think about our Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for their faith. I was looking up some examples of of how this happens, and you might have your own experiences and stories. I was reading through Open Doors, um, which is an agency that tries to raise awareness to the persecuted church. Um, In China, there's government pressure that means that pastors have to submit, um, oftentimes pastors will have to submit their sermons to local authorities before they go and preach them. Um, in Iran, there are arrests of new Christians that are widespread, that are unannounced, that people are given no answers to where their family and friends have gone. But amongst this, Revelation holds out the hope that there's still justice to be done. And there's even hope in judgment. The judgment comes so that people might sincerely actually look for God, that they might turn and seek him. If we're in the habit of praying for Christians around the world, how often do we just pray for a relief or a release from their distress? I don't want to ignore the the real kind of physical needs of Christians and others in distress around the world. But what Revelation is saying that is the future is fixed. It's complete in Jesus. For us, wouldn't it make more sense to pray for God's ultimate purpose even in judgment, that on one hand the persecuted church would know God's living presence beside them, but on the other that their persecutors would turn, they would look for God where he's to be found. The candles help us to remember the persecuted and their persecutors and to pray for them all. The dancer helps us remember that God's justice has this strange restraint to it, that it's true and it's fair, achieves exactly what it wants, even if we might not be aware of it. And the wine helps us remember that what we do is important, that as Paul says in Romans 2, that it's, it's our, actually our self-seeking that stores up wrath, and that by Jesus' acceptance of the wrath due to us, we no longer suffer the fate of God pouring out his wrath on us. It's a lot, isn't it? I kind of came to the end here and I thought, I don't actually, I 
God, I'm not sure how to make sense of this. There are a lot of promises. There are a lot of assurances. But what does it look like in our lives? Um, And it's been my hope and my prayer this week that this passage would shape our understanding of who God is, how God is actually for us, and how all the unthinkable things of this world can make sense, or that at least we can live with them. And all of this that I've spoken about this morning, it might be too dense, too heavy to know what to do with right now. But I trust that through the scripture, as every time that we read scripture, we encounter a good God, a God who's for us, not against us, and that he's perfect in his justice and his love. And it's my hope and the Holy Spirit's doing the work, but it can spur us on to, to build our lives on the love of Jesus, who receives the cup of wrath, the bowl of wrath that's supposed to be poured out, that will be poured out, the harm and the shame that we burden ourselves with. Jesus takes and he conquers sin and he removes the threat of death. He softens our hearts to receive him. He gives us joy and peace to live with him in eternal life now. Why don't we pray?